Our next passage in Hebrews brings up two ideas that many of us are dealing with even this morning. The fear of death and our daily struggle against temptation. The fear of death is clinically known as thanatophobia, also known as death anxiety, also known as being a human being. So we read the scripture, we see that eternal life is the goal. It's, it's called a, a prize, and yet most of us are not thinking about it consistently. And it makes sense why we wouldn't, because in between us now and us then is this terrifying speed bump called death. I had two conversations last week concerning people who had decided not to believe in Jesus. So I was asking, is it because you've studied and you've researched and you've come to the conclusion that it just doesn't make sense and so you've decided not to believe? And that wasn't the case at all. They had just decided to not think about it. And that's not just a strategy for unbelievers. Many believers, maybe many in this room, essentially are doing the same thing. It's just not something that I I think about. As we read the scripture, our Christian life is described as a race. And it's a race that we're supposed to win. But I bet a lot of us are just trying to keep ourselves in bounds when it comes to temptation. I mean, we can't think about winning the race. We can't think about growing into spiritual maturity. We're just trying to resist temptation and stay on the track. But what if we could move beyond these two things? Not that we would look forward to death because that's not natural and right. But that we wouldn't be afraid of it. And not that temptation would ever be easy. But what if it could be easier? In your listening guide, there's one sentence I want us all to remember today. Jesus came into the world to lead us out of the fear of death and temptation. Jesus came into the world to lead us out of the fear of death and temptation. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14. Because God's children are human beings made of flesh and blood, the Son also became flesh and blood. For only as a human being could he die, and only by dying could he break the power of the devil who had the power of death. Only in this way could he set free all who lived their lives as slaves to fear of dying. We also know that the Son did not come to help angels. He came to help the descendants of Abraham. Therefore, it was necessary for him to be made in every respect like us, his brothers and sisters, so that he could be our merciful and faithful high priest before God. Then he could offer a sacrifice that would take away the sins of the people. Since he himself has gone through suffering and testing, he is able to help us when we are being tested." First thing you see in your listening guide, Jesus came into the world. Jesus came into the world. That's what it says in verse 14. Because God's children are human beings made of flesh and blood, the Son also became flesh and blood. I have a confession to make today, and I know that some of you are going to judge me, and I just want to remind you the words of our Lord, judge not lest ye be judged. I have occasionally consistently been listening to Christmas music. (laughs) I know how far away we are. We're not even to Halloween yet. I know we're not to Thanksgiving. It's six weeks till Thanksgiving. I know how some of you have taken on the mantle of Thanksgiving Defender. I get it. Like It's a great lunch. It really is. (laughs) But there's something about Christmas 
There are three things that I'm really looking forward to this Christmas and already find myself wanting to celebrate. Number one, pumpkin pie. I make two pumpkin pies a year. One is on Thanksgiving. That's the practice pumpkin pie for the Christmas pumpkin pie. It's the only time I eat it. It's not fancy. It's not sophisticated. I'm not Instagramming pictures of it. It's just for me, and I secretly hope no one else will eat it. I was in the grocery store last week, and I thought, should I go ahead and buy the ingredients? I didn't, but I thought about it. And the reason I didn't was because I knew I would just get into the Cool Whip, you know. (laughs) I'm also looking forward to putting up Christmas lights in, in my house. I love decorating the outside of my house. We've moved since last Christmas, and so I weekly, if not daily, stand in front of my house and just picture it all in my mind and may have sketched it out a few different times. I'm looking at catalogs to see what we might be able to add to our collection this year. I love it. And then the third thing that I love to do is to pack my family into the car and drive around and look at Christmas lights in different parts of town. It's just these traditions that I really love. You know, we have a cold front that's supposed to be coming tomorrow, and all of God's people said, amen, and it's about time. You know, I hate this time of year in Houston because you watch sports on TV, and they're like wearing their hoodies and their jackets, and I'm like, I hate you so much. I mean, I'm supposed to love you, but, you know. So, so I've been wondering if I will be able to resist just throwing up like some stuff tomorrow, you know, when it's cold outside. Because there's nothing more demoralizing than the day after Thanksgiving when technically you are allowed to put up your Christmas decorations and you're wearing shorts. You know, you, you shouldn't wear shorts when you put up your Christmas decorations. I, I love Christmas so much and, and already starting to celebrate a little bit. I'm trying to keep it under wraps. That's why I told all of you about it today so that you could pray for me. But but I love it, and, and, and it's good, and the traditions that you have are, are good, and they're, they're fun, and they're meaningful, but I can't speak for you. I can only speak for me. I think sometimes the red, the green, the white, the traditions, the rhythms of Christmas minimize the miraculous grace of Christmas. They somehow help us to stay on the surface, these traditions do, instead of really understanding the depth of what... Christmas means. It means what Hebrews chapter 2 has just said, that the Son of God took on flesh and blood. The incarnation of Jesus is miraculous grace to us. And it's been God's plan all along. As He is creating the world, it is already in the plan and heart of God that Jesus would be born as a human. That's why there are 300 Separate prophecies in the Old Testament that point towards Jesus' arrival on earth with flesh and blood. There's prophecies about him being born in Bethlehem, about him being born in a virgin. There's prophecies about how he would uh, come to Egypt and then return back to Israel from Egypt. There are many prophecies that he would be raised in Nazareth. Because this flesh and blood that Jesus took on, it was God's plan from the beginning, and it was miraculous grace to us. And the reason we know it's miraculous grace, a gift, is when we compare it to other religions that are out there. See, most of the religions that you could go and find on the internet today are all about what we can do to attain an eternal reward. What we can do to qualify for eternal reward. So I make sacrifices and I celebrate 
religious holidays so that might, I might attain the right to be reincarnated as something better than I am right now. I try to separate the spiritual side of me from the regular side of me and only indulge the spiritual side so that I might attain enlightenment. I conform to the rules. I try to keep myself in bounds so that I might attain the right to go to a paradise or heaven or whatever it's called. But the gospel of grace, the gospel of Jesus is that there's nothing that we can do to attain an eternal reward. We were powerless to get ourselves to where God is, so God came to where we are. And he did for us what we could not do for ourselves. Jesus came into the world, next in your listening guide, to lead us out. Verse 17, therefore it was necessary for him to be made in every respect like us, his brothers and sisters, so that he could be our merciful and faithful high priest before God. Then he could offer a sacrifice that would take away the sins of the people. Jesus is our faithful and merciful high priest. The high priest was a very, very important person in the first half of the scripture, the Old Testament, because the high priest represented God's people in the temple. See, regular, ordinary folks like us, we couldn't just barge into the temple. We couldn't make sacrifices on our behalf to have our sins cleansed. You wouldn't even confess your sins. I mean, you would confess your sins to God, but the high priest would have to go and confess your sins in the temple before God. He represented regular people like us. So when the scripture says that Jesus is our merciful and faithful high priest, it means that he is representing us. That's why he had to take on flesh and blood while remaining the unique 100% son of God. He became a human. He stood where we stood and he stands in our place. That's why he's able to make a sacrifice for us that would take away our sin. But the sacrifice he's making is not like the high priests of old where it would be the blood of a ram or a bull or a goat. Our merciful and faithful high priest sacrificed that flesh and blood that he had taken on so that our sins could be forgiven. Jesus came into the world to lead us out next of the fear of death. It says in verse 14, because God's children are human beings made of flesh and blood, the son also became flesh and blood for only as a human being could he die and only by dying could he break the power of the devil who had the power of death. Only in this way could he set free all who lived their lives as slaves to the fear of dying. Now, how do I know if I am a slave to the fear of dying? Like I said, most of us are not thinking about death that often. I would guess a good percentage of us today have very little confidence about what happens immediately after we die. And because we have very little confidence... We become slaves to now. I don't know what's going to happen then. But I have some measure of knowledge about what's going to happen now. I don't know what my life will be like then. So I'm going to invest my life now. In this moment. And if we are a slave to now. That's how we can know. We have become a slave to the fear of dying. 
And this has been Satan's trick from the beginning. Remember how he came to Eve. He said, if you eat the fruit of this tree, as soon as you eat it, now you will know what God knows. And so she did. But because she invested in the now, she sacrificed the then. For Adam and Eve, they ate the fruit now, then they were removed from the Garden of Eden. They ate the fruit, then they had the curse of sin on their shoulders and the shoulders of every one of their descendants still on to this day. I wonder if you've ever thought about what a life would look like that was completely given over to Satan. Just somebody who just, just totally 100% gave themselves to do the, the will of Satan. I'm guessing most of us are picturing someone with very dark, dyed hair, stringy in some way, eyeliner, dark eyeliner. I don't know how eyeliner got associated with Satanism, but it did for a lot of us. There's like a measure where it's like cool and normal, but then you put too much on, then you're like a Satanist, I think is the way it works. A very dark t-shirt, usually it's got some band on it that you've never heard of, like that kind of band, and very, very dark pants. Like never just like a, just a casual pair of khakis for the Satanist, it's always like something very dark and some big, huge boots that nobody's wear. That's the typical picture that we have of Satanism, and we have probably for, I'm guessing, at least 30 years, that's, the only, that's how long I can probably speak with authority. In fact, there was a guy like that who came through my hometown because he had this incredible story when I was a kid. Valley used to be in a Satanist, and he totally looked like that. He showed pictures of himself, and that was a total package. Long, dark, stringy hair, very warm makeup, uh, and uh, dark t-shirts and dark pants, just the whole nine yards. And he came and told a story about how he was dabbling with demons, and he was doing Ouija boards, all the stereotypical stuff that you and I can think of. And then he had this miraculous story of how he had come to faith in Christ. It was really, really compelling. It was going around the entire country, even the world at that time, telling his story. Years later... People found out that it wasn't true. He's making the whole thing up. He had never been a Satanist. But what I want to suggest to you today is he had always been a Satanist. Because that picture that we have of the will of Satan executed in our lives is dark and this is the way it looks. That's just a picture we have. Somebody who's given themselves to Satan can be a good person. In fact, can even be a churchgoer. As long as that churchgoer at the end of the day says, Jesus is nice, but I am really trusting in me. I really want to do my will. And if my will collides with God's will, then I guess I do God's will too. Satan would be totally happy for you to keep looking the way that you look now. As long as he can exert control over you. But 1 John chapter 3, verse 8 says that Jesus came to destroy the works of the devil. That's what Hebrews 2 is saying. For only as a human being could he die, and only by dying could he break the power of the devil who had the power of death. Jesus has destroyed the devil's works. He's broken the power of the devil. That's why we don't have to be afraid of death. This could be four separate sermons, but just really quickly, four things from the scripture that should give you confidence about life after death for you. Number one, when you die, you are immediately with the Lord. Second Corinthians chapter five, verse eight, it tells us this 
truth that if you are present in your body, then you are away from the Lord. But if you are absent from your body, then you are with the Lord. That's why Jesus said to the thief on the cross, today you'll be with me in paradise. When you read it, he's just speaking very matter-of-factly as they're both suffering. He's almost saying, this is what we are doing now. But hey, just in a couple of hours, we'll be together still. We're just doing something else. We'll be in paradise. When you die, there's no long line in heaven. I don't know where somebody turned the DMV into heaven. So that's why we're probably not looking forward to eternal life, because it's just a line. Everywhere we see is a line. There'll be no gate there that they'll have somebody going in, out, in, out, in, out, in, out, because all that's decided here and now while you're in your body. There's no what if, maybe, I might sneak in then. It's either in or out, and that is decided now based on what you choose to believe in. As soon as you die, you're with the Lord. Then you'll return with the Lord when he returns back to earth. See, Jesus left his disciples and he says, I'm going to return. The scripture says when he returns, he's going to make this earth new again. No more hurricanes, no more flooding, no more tornadoes, no more earthquakes. The earth set right and whole and whole forever. And when Jesus returns, those of us who have already died will come back with him. When that happens, we'll receive resurrected bodies. You won't be a heavenly ghost. I think we're always worried about like people sticking their fingers through us, you know, in heaven. But we know we'll receive a resurrected body just like Jesus had after he was resurrected. It's real. You'll be able to touch it. He ate with his disciples. And then we will live on that remade earth. And unimaginable happy life forever. See, the goal is not to get where we look forward to death. Death is a curse. It's an enemy of God, according to the scripture. It will be the last enemy that he puts underneath his feet. But we can get to the place where the apostle Paul was in Philippians chapter one, where he was having this internal debate if I die, which was a reality for him. He, he was not writing Philippians from vacation. He was writing Philippians from jail. And at the end of that jail, could have been a death sentence because of his following Christ and how he was preaching the gospel and the gospel was disturbing whole cities. So death was a shadow that hung over every one of Paul's days. And he's having this eternal debate in Philippians chapter 1, if I die, I get to be with Jesus. But if I stay, I get to continue to be used by Jesus. He's like, I don't know which I should choose. He said, to depart and be with Christ is far better for me. But to stay in the body, he says, is going to be better for you, Philippians. So that's the place that we want to get where we would be able to say, whether life or death, to live is Christ. But to die is gain, because we gain Jesus. Because Jesus has come in the flesh, flesh and blood, our faithful, merciful high priest, he's 
led us out of the fear of death by destroying the works of the devil. And he also leads us out of temptation. It says in verse 18, since he himself has gone through suffering and testing, he is able to help us when we are being tested. You've been being tempted even longer than you're able to remember. The reason I know that is because I have an almost two-year-old and I watch her be tempted. So last week, Willa and I are sitting on the couch. I've read her the same book for the 40th time that day. It's a really good book. We read even the back cover, you know, that's, that's how passionate she is about that book. And and I just wanted to be a good dad and watch TV. I mean, that's, is that too hard to ask? I want to be a good dad and watch TV. So we're sitting on the couch. She's sitting on my lap. We've just read the book. Now I want to watch TV. So I set the book down next to her. She picks it back up. And Willa's like happy 98% of the time. But the last 2%, whoa, is she going to get her way in this world? And she starts shoving the book at me, wanting to read it again. And I'm like, I don't want to read it again. And she's groaning at me because she doesn't like, not totally there with the words. But I get the message, read me the book. And I'm like, I'm not reading you the book. So I take the book and I'm not mad, but I just like kind of toss it, you know, like toss it soft. So she knew I wasn't mad at her, but also far enough away that she got, got the point, you know, and she turned around and we locked eyes and I could see in her face everything that she was thinking. She's like, should I do it? Should I not do it? Should I do it? Should I not do it? And out of the corner of my eye, I see her hand go up and wham, right across my face. I was so stunned that I just picked up the book and read it to her again. I don't know. I feel like somebody should call somebody about it. All that to say, you've been being tempted for longer than you can even remember. Now, as you've gotten older, the stakes have gotten higher. And your will, not just your urge, has gotten involved. Your choice has gotten involved. But it happened to Jesus, too. Matthew chapter 4 tells us that story. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted there by the devil. For 40 days and 40 nights, he fasted and became very hungry. During that time, the devil came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become loaves of bread. But Jesus told him, No, the Scriptures say, People do not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city, Jerusalem, to the highest point of the temple and said, If you are the Son of God, jump off for the Scripture's sake. He will order his angels to protect you and they will hold you up with their hands so you won't even hurt your foot on a stone. And Jesus responded, The Scriptures also say you must not test the Lord your God. Next, the devil took him to the peak of a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in their glory. I will give it all to you, he said, if you will kneel down and worship me. Get out of here, Satan, Jesus told him. For the scriptures say, you must worship the Lord your God and serve only him. Notice that Satan came to Jesus when he was hungry and alone. Because what Satan knows about us is we are most vulnerable when we are isolated, when we are by ourselves. That's why church is so important. Not because you get a check 
next to your name somewhere in the heavenly realms, but so that you can have people who are around you, who are encouraging you, who are telling you to keep the faith and run the race and finish the race and fight with endurance. Because when we're alone, we're vulnerable and we are always alone. Now we are always surrounded, but we are always alone because of that little rectangle that's in your lap right now or in your hand or in your purse. Because even though I can be surrounded in just a few seconds, I can be all alone. Last week, I was running into a store just to pick up a few things. And I went to reach for my phone before I got out of my truck. And I thought for just a second, it wasn't planned. I thought, no, I need to leave it here because I can't even remember what it's like to stand in line without my phone. So we're surrounded and yet isolated. And that isolation makes us very, very vulnerable to temptation. And Jesus was hungry. He'd been fasting for 40 days and 40 nights. When you and I perceived or real have unmet needs, Satan will take advantage of those. Feel unloved today, feel unwelcome, feel unappreciated. If you have physical resources that you're lacking in your mind right now, all of those things Satan will try to take advantage of. And notice that he came to Jesus with targeted temptations. He says, use your power to serve yourself. Tell these stones to become bread. Jesus says, I'm not going to do it. He says, "Uh, just jump off. The angels are going to grab you. I mean, you know that God, your father, is not going to let you fall. Satan says, or Jesus says, I'm not going to test God. He takes him up to a high mountain, shows him all the kingdoms of the world and all the people. He says, listen, I'll give you all of these kingdoms right here, right now, all of these people that you love and care about so much, you don't have to suffer, you don't have to die if you just kneel down and worship me. Targeted temptations. Ephesians chapter six says that he has schemes for bringing us down. He has methods. He's not going to come to you with someone else's temptation. He's designed one just for you. And the stakes were high for Jesus. I know that most of us think, well, there's, when I'm tempted, there's at best a 50-50 shot whether I'm going to give in. But for Jesus, I mean, like, there's like no doubt. I mean, he just kind of click on that son of godness that he must have had somewhere in there and been able to just breeze right through i mean he's quoting scriptures right here this is amazing he's like a a machine but we know from other places that this temptation really affected him in verse one then jesus was led by the spirit into the wilderness to be tempted there by the devil so according to god's will the spirit of god pushed jesus out into the wilderness to be tempted by satan Now remember how Jesus taught us to pray. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. So when Jesus was teaching us to pray, he wants us to ask that God would not let what happened to him happen to us. God, don't lead me into temptation. Jesus was led into temptation. But deliver us from evil. This this encounter with the devil out there. He didn't just brush it off. So when Hebrews says that he knows what it's like to suffer through testing and is able to help us in our temptation, 
that's real. Again, this could be four different sermons. But just quickly, here are four ways from the scripture that Jesus helps us in our temptation. Number one, he intercedes for us. He's praying for you. When you're tempted, Jesus is praying for you. He's advocating for you, speaking up for you in heavenly places. Second, he builds in a way of escape for us. According to 1 Corinthians, whenever we are tempted, there's always an off-ramp. God makes sure to open a door so that none of us today could say, well, the devil made me do it. There was no way that I could have resisted. There's always an escape for us. We know that he's aligning our will with God's will. Philippians chapter 2 verse 16 says, It is God who works in you, both to will and to work for your good pleasure. What that means is even right now, God is making what you want and what he wants look the same. So when we are tempted, we don't just have to say, God, what do you want me to do here? Because what God wants and what you want are the same. And then finally, in Christ, we've been given God's armor. We've been given a helmet of salvation, a breastplate of righteousness, a belt of truth, shoes that are equipped with the gospel, a shield of faith and a sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. We are not outgunned in our battle against temptation. We are well armed. We are well provided for. And why? Because Jesus knows what it's like to be us. When I married into Amanda's family, you know, you inherit Christmas traditions that you didn't have. And one of their traditions was to read the Christmas story, the story of Jesus' birth before they do anything at their house Christmas morning. It's a powerful moment. It doesn't take long to just kind of stop and say these gifts over here under the tree. That's because we love one another. But the story we're getting ready to read, this is because God loves us. It's a powerful moment. So as our kids have gotten older, we do what many of you do, which is we do Christmas at our house with just our immediate family. And then just in a couple of hours, we go over with her folks and do Christmas at their house. And So when our kids were starting to be able to read, we're getting ready to open presents one year. And Amanda says, let's read the Christmas story. And I thought internally, why would we do that? We're going to read it in an hour and a half. Now, I didn't say that externally because I'm a pastor and pastors are never allowed to say, why are we reading the Bible? You just got, it's just built in. You just got to always go with it. But I'm a very efficient person and I try to minimize different things. And so it's like, well, we're going to read it in an hour and a half. It's not like we're going to drive across the country and then, you know, then like maybe it would be more appropriate to read it again. But like literally in like an hour, we're going to be reading it again the reality is is that this is one of those stories that deserves more than just one reading one time a year it deserves all the readings Jesus came into the world he took on flesh and blood that's not just great news for a great holiday that's great news for regular people who might be scared of what happens after we die And that's great news for regular people who sometimes are tempted. Jesus came into this world to lead us out of the fear of death and temptation. Let's pray.
second. The spirit of prayer, just quiet. Voices in your mind and heart. God, what do you want to say to me today? you to stand to your feet and invite our prayer folks to come take their places around the front and also the sides in just a few minutes I'm going to invite you to pray come forward and be prayed for there are two reasons why you might not be confident today about what happens after you die one of them is maybe you've not been reading the scripture and you're just unfamiliar with things that you believe in and then other option is that you have never placed your faith and life into the hands of Jesus and become a Christian today. You don't become a Christian by going to church. You don't become a Christian by acting like a Christian. You become a Christian when you stop and say, Jesus, I believe in you. I could believe in a lot of things out there, but I'm believing in you. And so today, if you, through the power of God's spirit, are coming to a place where you're saying, I want to believe in Jesus. Then as others come forward to pray, you come forward as well. Just tell one of these folks, I'm ready to believe in Jesus today. That won't be weird for them because there was a time in their life where they said that exact same thing. And they can tell you what the scripture says. They can pray with you and you can leave with confidence today that you're going to be celebrated in heaven when you'd make that decision and your name is going to get written in his book. That's why you don't have to stand in line. He's already got you down. I want to invite the rest of the church to come and pray. Jesus said God's house is a house of prayer. The one thing uniting all of us today is all of us have a need. All of us. All of us care about somebody who's struggling right now. And I want to encourage you today to not just say, what do I want to pray, but... God, what do you want me to pray for today? Who do you want me to pray for today? And as God stirs your heart and answers that in the quietness of your own mind and heart, you come and pray for that person. You come and pray for yourself. Jesus, we thankful that you're interceding for us even now. You're praying for us as we pray. So we pray with confidence that we're going to be heard. Aim your power and your glory and your authority at these requests today. Do for us what we can't do for ourselves. In Jesus' name, amen. So let's worship together, and as God stirs your heart, let's turn this into a house of prayer.